Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history. Like snails, blackboards and football boots. Football boots, Sam, are in fact all about Henry VIII. They found, years ago, Henry VIII's football boots. But we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of windows is in fact all about disputes in Tudor Britain? Or that the history of dreams, yes, dreams, is in fact all about the rise and fall of empires? The man sitting opposite me who will help navigate us through this wonderful historical world is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And I do like to think of myself as a sort of historical pilot, piloting us through the past. But the man sitting opposite me is the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello everyone, this is one of our special series for kids and each episode we're going to take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we're going to prove that it does and today we're doing the history of scabs. It's going to be great. You have been waiting to do this for ages Sam, haven't you? I have. You suggested it to me a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was your idea and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And um, I'm very I'm excited about doing Excellent. it. Excellent. Um, they're so horrible scabs, aren't they? But they do have a history. And um, how, but how would we go about thinking about it? Well, rather like our episode on the scar, you could think about your body in terms of scabs. And when I think about scabs, I often think about childhood, the history of childhood. And I always used to have scabs on my knees having fallen over. One of the most horrific accidents that I remember having had was cycling down the road in which I lived and it was on a slight incline. And I came off my bike in a very horrific way and scraped all up the side of my leg and was left with a very gruesome looking scab. I was very sorrowful at the time. I remember as well, um, I had a, a couple of bike accidents and I had um, a very deep scab on one of my knees um, or a deep, deep, deep cut, which kept on scabbing over. I kept on picking it off and it kept on scabbing over and it was kind of with me for an entire summer. And because I kept picking it, the, the damn thing, I've, I've now got a, a horrible scar on my leg. But I also fell off my bike and, and kind of slid along the ground. So I had maybe 20 little scabs on my, my lower leg, my calf which was really annoying. I remember how itchy they were when they healed. But the point is, these uh, scabs like this, you think about it, it does take you back to a period in your past. And also, it's, a, it's something, humans have got skin and they would have all suffered from scabs. So it's something, it's like a bridge between past and present where we can understand and we can share an experience with people who lived centuries ago. Yes. And scabs are also all about wounds and healing. It's about the history of medicine. It's about nursing and doctors, the medical profession, the treatment of wounds. So the scab is the precursor to the scar. And it, the scab forms as part of the body's healing process. And the science behind that, have you ever looked into this? It's actually very interesting, but also very complicated. There are four different stages there's the blood clotting stage where the blood sort of congeals so that it no longer you no longer bleed. Then there's a stage of inflammation where the damaged and dead cells are cleared out. 
and then there's growth of new tissue and this is when the scab forms and the scab is a sort of little covering to stop blood loss, to stop any infection, to stop stuff getting into the wound and then you have a phase of maturation or remodeling which is when the skin grows back. So, and I think what one of the interesting things is to think about historically in the past, how people, how the medical profession, well, how the medical profession formed, but also how medical knowledge of that, of that grows over time. You can also think about other scabs that are linked to the body. So scabies, for example, very sort of unpleasant skin complaint that are, it's a contagious skin disease caused by a mite infestation or smallpox is another one this is a, a historic disease and the last case was in October 1977 and the World Health Organization announced the global eradication of smallpox in 1980 but throughout history it was a very deadly and dangerous disease and in fact I'm a Tudor, professor of Tudor history and Early in her reign, in October 1562, Elizabeth I of England, one of the longest reigning uh, monarchs, contracted smallpox. And this is a disease that is known to badly scar the face and body. And you get a, a series of, 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 of scabs. So you scab over and then when the scab comes off, you're left with a scarred face. And she was quite seriously affected with the disease and that people feared at the time that it would take her life. But fortunately, she survived the illness and had minimal scarring. However, her lady-in-waiting, Lady Mary Sidney, who nursed the Queen during her illness, herself contracted smallpox and apparently was badly disfigured as a result. And the effect of the scarring is recorded in spectacularly unsympathetic terms by her husband Sir Henry Sidney who records in his autobiography his, his memoir of services in Ireland and listen to this for a husband describing his wife when I went to Newhaven I left her a full fair lady in mine eye at least the fairest and when I returned I found her as Foul a lady as the smallpox could make her, the scars of which to the resolute discomfort ever since hath done and doth remain in her face. And so she lives like a night raven in the house. What an awful thing for a husband to say about a wife. And that idea of her being a night raven in the house basically means not only is she scarred and he finds her repellent and ugly to look at but you can you can imagine her almost you know not wanting to come out and be seen except at night isn't that awful absolutely terrible yes. i mean uh, and also the the idea of the scabs um before the scars actually form one of the uh, the appalling things about was smallpox was just how many of these pock marks you had on your face i mean imagine Maybe you've got a friend who's got lots and lots of freckles on their face. That's actually what it would have been like to have these pock marks all over you. And then they would have been itchy scabs, a terrible, terrible disease, which is why so much effort was put into eradicating it. In fact, it's the far first and the only infectious disease which has actually been eradicated by human effort. It wasn't until 1980 that the World Health Organization declared 
that um, smallpox was, was no longer going to be a curse from humanity. So James has given us an example from the Tudor period, the 1600s. I'm just going to leap forward a few years to, to a point where this was first tackled by a doctor because it's absolutely fascinating, the initial science behind eradicating this problem. Then we're going to go back in time and talk about how people dealt with diseases like this and other types of illness in the medieval period. So this is from a book by a doctor called Edward Jenner, who is a doctor from Gloucestershire. And he realised that one of the interesting things actually with smallpox at the time was that it was a disease of children and in youth in particular. And there was some identification, understanding that dairy maids and farmers they had contracted something called cowpox, which is a mild version of smallpox, and that they then never got smallpox itself. And so this is a, a little account of one of the, of the first examples of inoculation, of, 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 of vaccination against the disease. Sarah Nelms, a dairymaid at a farmer's near this place, was infected with the cowpox from her master's cows in May 1796. She received the infection on a part of her hand which had been previously in a slight degree injured by a scratch from a thorn. A large pustular sore and the usual symptoms accompanying the disease were produced in consequence. The pustule was so expressive of the true character of cowpox as it commonly appears upon the hand that I have given a representation of it in the annexed plate. And he drew this horrific picture of a hand. The two small pustules on the wrist arose also from the application of the virus to some minute abrasions of the cuticle. But the livid tint, if they ever had any, was not conspicuous at the time I saw the patient. The pustule on the forefinger shows the disease in an earlier stage. It did not actually appear on the hand of this young woman, but was taken from that of another. And he then goes on in his book to describe how he inoculated this girl against the disease and she never had it again. But this was not until the 1790s, James. So it's still maybe 200 years after the description of Elizabeth I. We know, however, that smallpox, particularly people suffering from these scabs, was a massive problem in the Middle Ages. We know the first accounts of it come from... Um, a Persian doctor called Abu Bakr Muhammad Imin Zakaria al-Razi, very famous man, a Persian. He was a physician, he was a polymath, and he wrote about it in the um, late 800s. Um, and so ever since then, it was a massive problem. The history of the Crusades is actually linked with this as well, where you have a lot of Europeans going to Asia, Central Asia, where this disease had taken hold. And what they did is they brought it back with them to Europe. But they also brought back the ideas of people like Al-Razi, uh, the very famous doctors who were working in Central Asia at the time, who had a much more advanced understanding of sickness and medicine than we did in the medieval period. Excellent. Now, that leads me to go on and talk about causes of disease and the treatment of medieval everyday illnesses. Now, the most important thing to remember here is that unlike today, medieval doctors did not understand that disease was caused by germs. Instead, they thought that disease was caused by a mixture of common sense ideas and ideas based on superstition. This was 
central to the way in which they thought about them. Now I'm going to read you a couple of sources here and we're going to think about which of these are based on common sense. So which, in other words, are people observing and drawing what they see as logical conclusions and which were based on superstition. Now, first of all, a monk's letter to the Bishop of London in 1348. And it reads, God is terrible towards the sons of men. He often allows plagues, miserable famines, conflicts, wars and other forms of suffering to arise and uses them to terrify and torment people and so drive out their sins. And so the people of England are to be oppressed by the plague. So in other words, what this letter is saying is that the plague was something, the plague which ravaged medieval society was actually something sent by God. So it's about superstition rather than a modern day understanding of how a disease like that could be spread. Now here's another example, this time by a very famous French doctor writing in the 1300s, a man called Guy de Choliac. He's talking about the plague again. The general cause of the plague was the close position of the three great planets, Saturn, Jupiter and Mars. And this had taken place in 1345 on the 24th of March. Such a coming together of planets is always a sign of wonderful, terrible or violent things to come. So in other words, again, this is brought by a collision of the planets. So again, it's not about common sense. It is about superstition. Now, if we think about other ideas, other couple of other sources that we've got, we can see the way in which doctors, medical people started to apply common sense. And one of the form, one of the ideas that they had was about how medicine was organised, how the human body worked. And medieval doctors thought that the body was made up of four humours. And these were yellow bile, which represented fire, black bile, which represented earth, blood, which represented air, and phlegm, which represented water. So men and women were made up of different constitutional elements of these humours. And if these humours were out of balance, then you fell ill. So, for example, if you take the summer, dry heat would increase the fire in your body, so you would sweat, you would get hot, and people might even become bad-tempered. In the winter, this could also lead to an imbalance of the humours. The damp climate would increase the water in your body, and this would make you produce more phlegm and suffer from coughs and colds. Now, this humoral understanding of the body comes from ancient Greece and from a writer called Galen. And it was dominant for quite some time, well into the 16th and 17th century. We look on it today as something that isn't true, that isn't correct. But nevertheless, this was something that the medieval medical world saw as common sense. Now, let me finish with another example. This is that in the medieval period, people thought that worms 
were connected to illness. And one of the things that doctors did to test people's health was that they examined their feces. They examined the stools of sick people. And when they saw worms, they drew an obvious link between these worms and whatever illness the person was suffering from. So in other words, we have what we might describe as an empirical or practical evidence-based commonsensical approach to medicine here. Now, if we move on from an understanding of what caused disease to look at the treatment of everyday illnesses, we can also see a variety of methods present in the medieval world. Now, many doctors used herbal potions and mixtures to form medical cures for people. And there's quite a lot of knowledge that people had around using herbs to treat everyday illnesses. And medical historians today have studied the recipes that survive and actually think that medieval doctors did quite well. Some of them are still used today by herbalists. However, alongside these herbal treatments, there is also a reliance upon superstition, sometimes even magic. And what I'm going to do now is to read you out a number of illnesses and then to tell you what the medieval treatment was. So the first illness is toothache. And the treatment for this was to take a candle of mutton fat and burn it as close as possible to the tooth. Hold a basin of cold water beneath it. The worms that are gnawing the tooth will fall into the water to escape the heat of the candle. That's certainly not how I would want my toothache to be treated. <laughs> heart disease. Heart, brilliant, brilliant heart disease. Give the patient a medicine of parsley or sage. Treat the patient with powdered animal skull, the juice of a boiled toad and dead insects. Now, if I was suffering from heart disease, again, that's certainly not how I would want to be treated. Bad digestion. Remove the excess blood by cutting a vein. Alternatively, use blood-sucking leeches. So quite common in medieval medicine, and this is connected to the humoral system, is the understanding that in order to cure people, you would get rid of what you saw as blockages or excess blood. But of course, this could sometimes be quite dangerous. Not only could you let out too much blood, but also it could lead to infection. Now, here we are, eye infection. To cure an eye infection, make an eye salve. To prepare the salve, take onion, garlic, equal amounts of both. Pound them well together. Take wine and bull's gall, equal amounts of both. Mix with the onion and garlic. Then put in a brass vessel. Let it stand for nine nights. Strain through a cloth and clear well. Put on the soreness with a feather. I can't imagine that would work at all. I can't think of anything worse than onion and garlic and wine put on an eye infection. Backache. Mix. I think people should, should make those. I think people <laughs> should. should give everyone a challenge. <laughs> Backache. Mix two pennyweights of betony, which is a type of herb, and two bowlfuls of sweet wine mixed with hot water. Give to a patient while fasting. Asthma. Put the lung of a fox into sweetened wine. Drink the mixture. I can't think of anything more revolting 
a sore eyelid. Poke the saw with nine grains of barley <laughs> and say, flee, flee, barley chase you. Whenever I have a sore eyelid, I shall, I shall try that. So what we have then is a sense of medieval medicine that, yes, some of it relies on knowing how herbs work and actually keeping a herb garden in a medieval household, a physic garden, was a very important component of the kitchen and the house would often have a still room and a still room with a still, a great big iron pot where you could mix up all of these herbal ingredients was very important. But alongside these, and alongside these very practical judgments, was also a belief in superstition and in particular the power of God to intervene on earth. Absolutely fascinating how people in the past dealt with it. And, you know, if you're thinking about some people suffering from smallpox in, say, 1100, it's, you know, 600 years, 700 years until uh, a vaccine is actually discovered. Well, um, have we got a task for everyone, we, James? We do have a task. Now, what I'd like to, to end with is that the knowledge of anatomy. Now, by the end of the Middle Ages, the skills of doctors were improving with training in medical schools. And in the 14th century, that French doctor that I was talking about earlier on, Guy de Choliac, he was encouraging the dissection of dead bodies. So we see the sort of fledgling start of anatomy. So, but the thing is, dissection is forbidden by the church. However, de Choliac claimed that by dissecting human bodies, he was able to learn the anatomy, in other words, the structure of the body, of internal organs, skin, veins and sinews. And gradually, medical schools allowed dissection to take place occasionally, although the church was still very much against it. But for example, after 1340 at Montpellier in France, students were allowed to study one corpse a year. But unlike medical students today, who have their own corpse to dissect, they weren't allowed to do it themselves, but instead the dissection was performed by the teacher's assistant. Now, there are two questions that I want you to think about here. Firstly, why do you think the church was against the dissection of corpses? So why do you think the church was against the dissection of corpses? And secondly, how helpful do you think the study of corpses was to medical students in the Middle Ages. In other words, what is the importance of anatomy? So write those two questions out and write a short answer for each of them. That's a wonderful challenge. That'll really get you thinking. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you'll never think about scabs the same way again. Do please check us out on historiesoftheunexpected.com for some more. Find us on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. We'd love to hear from every single one of you. Thanks all for listening. Bye. Take care. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.